Hello, and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9 a.m. or for our more traditional service at 11 a.m. We also stream full services live on our Facebook page. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. So we've been on this post-Easter experience of journeying through some of the heresies that have arisen over the year. And a heresy is something that is considered contrary to the core of Christian thought. And so the United Methodist Church doesn't per se have heresies, uh, but we do have some central beliefs that we share with every other mainstream Christian denomination like the Trinity. And so as we've been working through those, it's been an opportunity to see how we have persecuted people, to recognize the, the flaws in that mindset and that behavior and the sinfulness that has risen from it. But it also has been an opportunity to engage with our minds in how we should be thinking about God, how we should be thinking about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the church, and the world. And so it's been a wonderful way for us to kind of journey together through some things that a lot of us don't have a lot of exposure to. But today we're going to be talking about Pelagianism. Y'all are very excited over that, huh? Pelagianism, named after Pelagius. And I want to stop right there because one of the huge tragedies is that most people this day and age, and probably for about a thousand years, have only known that Pelagius was a human being, and by the way, a beloved child of God, a being of infinite sacred worth. They only know about Pelagius because he was declared a heretic for his thought, and his thought was then named after him. So he has this irredeemable aura about him. We have condemned this man to an entire existence of heresy thousands of years almost after he existed. How tragic is that? Now, one of the reasons why this happened is because, unfortunately, his thought ran contrary to a very well-known and respected theologian. But before I get to there, I want to share with you some insight into how we recognize what we have done to Pelagius. So this comes from Heresy, a history of defending the truth by Alistair McGrath. And Alistair McGrath used to be a long-tenured professor at Oxford University and now at the University of London. And because as Methodists, we have a little special place in our heart for Oxford University where John and Charles Wesley went. It's especially apropos that we should hear his words here. He is actually quoting for us the noted patristic scholar Robert Evans. Here is what Robert Evans says as quoted by Alistair McGrath. Pelagius is one of the most maligned figures in the history of Christianity. It has been the common sport of the theologian and the historian of the theology to set him up as the symbolic bad man and to heap upon him accusations which often tell us more about the perspective of the accuser than about Pelagius. So he has become kind of this theological punching bag, a scapegoat, if you will, for his position. Now, what is his position? His position is that God's grace is the gift of free will. Now, as 
United Methodists, we believe in free will. The other side of that argument is usually about predestinationalism, which would be an entirely different sermon. So we're not going to go into that. But we take it as God-given fact that we have been given the opportunity to enact our will, God's will, or in some cases, other people's wills. That we have been empowered to make decisions, but therefore we are held accountable for the decisions that we make. Now, Pelagius wasn't saying that we didn't have free will. In fact, he believed in free will so vehemently that he believed that it was that gift that enables the Christian to make choices and to live in such a way so that they could find perfection through the gift of free will. Now, that would be an interesting perspective to have. That's not what we believe currently in Methodism, and that's not the Catholic belief where he came out of. But unfortunately for Pelagius, the conversation got shut down very quickly because he was arguing against a man who is rather famous, and whether you've heard him as Augustine or Augustine, he is one of the foundational theologians of the Roman Catholic denomination. In fact, it is because of, and I've heard it both ways, and I'm probably going to bounce back and forth through both pronunciations of his name, so I beg your forgiveness if that's confusing, but Augustine believed in original sin, and he would articulate it in such a way that that is the articulation that we have in the Roman Catholic Church and the Catechism to this day. The idea that Augustine puts forth is that when Adam, Notice we don't talk about Eve right now, but just Adam. When Adam ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he incurred guilt because he was told, do not eat of the tree. And he incurred guilt. And the belief was, according to Augustine, that every human being since, because the belief was that Adam and Eve were the parents of all humankind, that every human being from that point on inherited the guilt of Adam. So that the day that you were born under this theology, the day that you were born, you already had guilt on you, which is why in the Roman Catholic Church, they ask that children be baptized immediately upon birth within the first six weeks, because they have already inherited this guilt. That is not the United Methodist or the Wesleyan understanding of original sin. John Wesley articulated an understanding of original sin that goes more like this. When Adam and Eve ate of that original fruit that they were told not to eat, what ended up happening was it changed something within them. Now, he didn't understand molecular DNA, but he used the word sickness, that it infected humankind. And so that from that point on, when we got to the age of cognitive dissonance, we were able to choose our will over God's. So therefore, we were, to quote him, bent to sinning. That if we were given the choice, that we would almost always choose what we wanted over what God wanted or someone else. And so if we continue down that line of thought, what happens is you come to the point where you realize that even though you were born without guilt, we don't believe in Wesleyanism that you were born with guilt, but if you live long enough, you're going to start to actualize your will. I've told you before, I think that happens right about 18 months. Right about 18 months, children start to get a little feisty, right? They start to realize, if I'm upset at you, I can bite you. If I don't like what you're doing, I can hit you. I can take that from you. I can take it from her. You know, I can do what I want. 
And so because they are starting to experience that freedom, they use it in ways that they don't know is wrong, right? Children don't know that you're not supposed to bite people unless we tell them you're not supposed to bite people. And so at that age, we start to instruct them. No, we're not going to bite. That's not nice, right? We're not going to do that. We want to do the nice thing. And we start to rear our children to live out the values that we have. And so we have this understanding in the United Methodist Church that original sin is just that if we don't restrain ourselves or if we don't think very carefully about things, we will almost always default to our will. We have to be trained what God's will is. Most people have to be trained repeatedly about what God's will is, right? That's why we're always reading the Bible. That's why we're continuing to have discussions about what is it that God is asking us to be and do here and now? Because God's will is not something that we innately know. I mean, how many times in your life have you been doing something only to find out that it was actually something you weren't supposed to be doing, right? And that's not because you were looking for ways to sin, but that it was happening. I can't tell you how many times, because uh, we've had this experience in not this confirmation, but other confirmation classes, where you'll be telling people, well, technically, we're not supposed to be doing that. And they're like, oh, well, my dad breaks Sabbath all the time. And I'm like, okay, we're not talking about your dad. We're talking about, <laughs> right? We're trying to, like, focus on us. But I appreciate the confessional nature of telling me what your dad's doing wrong. Um, you know, we want to focus on what we are doing wrong so that we can correct it, because we don't want to break God's heart. We don't want to break God's will. We want to do the right thing. And sometimes we think we're doing the right thing, and it's only later that we found out that we have hurt people. And we weren't trying to hurt anybody, but we're humans, and we sin and fall short of the glory of God. So we have to think about it. Now, Pelagius' problem was that when Pelagius started to articulate that grace is free will, that meant that you are responsible for what happens. Now, I'm not saying that you're not responsible for what happens, you are. But then it says that you're also responsible for all the good that you do. Now that's where there's a big divergence within a lot of mainstream Christianity, and especially United Methodism, and Pelagius. Now I don't think that Pelagius woke up one morning and was like, let's see how many good Christians I can get to come to the dark side. I don't think he did that. But I think what he was trying to say is, you have to make decisions. You have to decide if you are going to do God's way or your way. It is a decision every minute of every day. And it's a hard thing because what we want comes so naturally. It comes so easily. You know? And if you have people around you that facilitate that, then it's going to be even easier. For instance, a lot of times when my child was younger, he would stay with my mother or she would come to watch him while I was out of town. And then I would find out that he had a very diverse diet from what he normally had. Because I didn't tend to feed him chocolate for a meal. But, you know, that love of grandma uh, came out in chocolate. And so, you know, he would participate in this. And he would go, you mean I can have this? I can have a brownie for dinner? Yes, why wouldn't you want to have a brownie for dinner when you're three? Why not? But the problem is that if you continually eat like that, one, you're not doing your body any favors, right? And two, you're actually not helping to take care of your body. Your body is a gift. It has been entrusted into your care. And if you don't eat things that are healthy for your body, then you're not equipping your body to help you do the work of Jesus Christ. 
because you're not going to be able to do the things that you need to do. And so we have this responsibility. But at three, he was like, chocolate. Not, ooh, things that God said are good for me, right? He didn't do that. He also wasn't like, ooh, let me have a cheeseburger and see if I can break kosher law. He wasn't trying to do that, right? Instead, he was just going with what tasted and felt good. And so now we get to the point in our lives where we understand Jesus Christ. We understand the redemptive love of the cross. We understand that God has given us the gift of free will. And the question is, what will you do with your will? What will you do with it? Now, Pelagius actually wanted to encourage you to use your free will. Every day, you can choose to be righteous. My siblings in Christ, you cannot choose to be righteous. Righteousness is something that is bestowed by God alone. God determines whether you are righteous. If you determine when you're righteous, that's called self-righteous. And most of us don't like those people. We don't appreciate self-righteous, right? There's a big difference in that. You see somebody and you're like, she thinks she's self-righteous. She needs to get right with God. You've had those moments, you know. But instead, Pelagius was trying to encourage you not to take God's grace for granted. Now, that will be echoed almost a thousand years later by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer will say the same thing. If you continually do the same sin, knowing that you're sinning, and you continually do it without trying to cease or to stop it, then what you're doing is taking advantage of God's grace. You are cheapening God's grace. That's the phrase he used, cheap grace. Stop taking God's grace and trampling upon it because it came at the highest cost. So you have to be cognitive of the fact that God has given you free will so that you can choose to stop, stop the things. Now that's hard because our will is strong and sometimes it feels good to sin. As I've said before, if it felt like a colonoscopy prep, we'd only do it once. <laughs> but instead it feels pretty good, right? It feels pretty good. It feels really good to lash out in anger in that moment, right? And to say things that are hurting and cutting because it is really, really good to see someone get what you think they have coming. Feels good. That's not the way of Jesus Christ. It feels really good sometimes to do what you want because you haven't always had it easy and you've had a hard time and today it's going to be all about me. Feels really good until you've taken away from a relationship with someone else and you've hurt that relationship. That's why we have to think about what we're doing and remembering the high cost of grace helps us to reframe how important it is not to take advantage of it. Now, Pelagius, unfortunately for him, came up on a super theological heavyweight champion in Augustine. And when he did, Augustine won. And Augustine, as the winner, got to declare Pelagius a heretic. And he continued to use that word until actually a bishop finally declared that Pelagius was not only a heretic, but his thought process, Pelagianism, was a heresy. And ever since then, ever since the early 500s, people have only known Pelagius as an irredeemable heretic. And that's tragic, because we don't believe that anybody's irredeemable. That's God's grace. But God also knows that we need to have the opportunity to experience that grace. That's why we take Holy Communion. That's why we can choose to be baptized 
Or if we were baptized as an infant or a young child without much understanding or say, we can choose to be confirmed. We have been given that free will gift. Do you want this grace? It is here. It is for you. The table is set. All you have to do is choose to come and partake. That grace is always available to you. And so we have this incredible gift of God's grace. And the decision for us as individual disciples is, what will you do with that grace? Now, the whole idea of communion is that Jesus was preparing all of his disciples, not only those that were gathered at the table that night, but all those who would gather at his table throughout the ages, to one day come together at a feast within the new kingdom to come, where we would all eat together, where everyone would have a place at the table. And I have no idea how you make that happen, but God can do incredible things. And so I know that one day when we gather at the kingdom to come, after the resurrection and we gather there and we take our seats for the first time, somebody's gonna be sitting next to Pelagius. Part of me hopes it's Augustine. But the other part of me knows that that's only one side and someone will sit on the other side. And if we believe that God's grace is available to us and we believe that it's available to everyone, like Pelagius, then we have to believe that if we have the honor of sitting at that table and we end up next to Pelagius, who's next to Augustine, maybe the way that we embody that grace, even in the kingdom to come, is to say, Augustine, do you know Pelagius? Isn't it amazing that in the wide diversity of God's people, what allows us all to sit at the table is not our thoughts, but our faith. And that we are able to come here not because we thought the right thing and others are excluded because they thought the wrong thing, but because we had a relationship with a savior whose love is bigger than our wrongs. And that's the lesson. Not to always assume the worst about people because Pelagius didn't. Pelagius wanted to assume the very best about you and me and everyone else. Wanted to assume that human nature was actually good and that if left to our own devices, we could choose to do the right thing. Oh, I wish that were true, but I've worked at a preschool for a very long time now. And I know that even though preschoolers are wonderful blessings and they are incredible little people, if you're not paying attention, they will do things that they know are not right. And it's not because they're like, I know it grosses out Pastor Sarah when I play in the toilet. That's not what's happening. Well, what's happening is, in that moment, like all of us, it would be feel really good to do what I want to do right now. And yeah, it might. But if you play in the toilet and you get germs on your hands and then you don't wash your hands and you get one of your friends really sick, how good did it feel? And the fact is that our sin is a sickness and we have to figure out what we're going to do with our sickness. Now, if John Wesley were around today and was able to read all of the literature and the advancements in science and could read about DNA, I believe that he would kind of amend what he said about humankind becoming sick in original sin and instead talk about when Adam and Eve ate that fruit, it changed something in our DNA. We were created to be like God. 
and we were given this gift of free will that we would choose to be like God. But all of a sudden, something changed, and instead of constantly being focused and oriented toward God, we suddenly became oriented within. This feels really good. This feels right. This feels like what I should be doing. Rather than going, Lord, what should I do? Lord, your will be done. Instead of being oriented here, we are oriented here. And God says that through the gift of baptism and through the gift of Holy Communion, a piece of me can dwell within you. Don't be oriented within. Be oriented to God. And that peace that's within you will sanctify you, will set you aside and transform you into holiness so that you are able to stand upright and just before God. And I believe that there are so many through the ages that we branded as a heretic like Pelagius. And we looked at them and said, your thought is so wrong that your heart cannot be right. And what a tragic sin that is, because the Apostle Paul tells us that it is not by what we do, it is not by what we think, but it is by our faith. Our faith alone is what it is that allows us to be righteous before God. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. But we also know that that gave us knowledge of human sin. And he goes on to say, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And you know that belief is more than an exercise of the mind. It is more than a feeling of the heart. It is more than the inaction of our hands and our feet. It is the core of who we are. Is your faith in Jesus Christ? Because if it is, then that is where your salvation lies. And when you think the wrong thoughts and you say the wrong thing and you do the wrong thing and you feel the wrong thing in your heart, you are not forsaken because God's grace is always waiting. May we be that willing to offer that grace to others and to not assume the worst, but to assume that they, like us, are being sanctified by that same amazing grace. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.